As you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. If you are following along in the Pew Bible, that is page number 528. 528. We'll look at a very familiar but very important psalm, so much so that the Lord stuck it in the front of, our, of the book of Psalms. It's meant to be as a guide to how we're supposed to look at the rest of the Psalter and indeed how we look at Scripture itself. So we're going to begin with Psalm 1, verse 1. Please listen carefully because this is also... God's word for you today. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached to you. Let's pray and ask his blessing on our message today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this word that has been given to us, this wonderful, wise psalm. I pray that you would help us to look at it in a fresh way, and to apply it to our lives in the new year. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, many of us are starting this year with a renewed sense of hope. It's a new year. New calendars. New notebooks. A new me, just like I said last year. It's going to be different, I repeat, from last year. I can feel it this time. These days, we have more tools than ever before that promise to make us better, smarter, faster. This was the year in which many of us were introduced to what has been popularly called artificial intelligence, promising us the ability to do so many things that we never thought we could do before, making us more productive, more creative, more, more. But as helpful as all of these things can be, and if you get to know me in any way, I'm more than happy to nerd out with you on the latest note-taking software and productivity client. Those things are not where our hope is. Our hope to make ourselves more of what Jesus wants us to be is not going to be found in an app. ChatGPT can't teach you how to be holy. The internet can't give you wisdom, which I hope we know by now. But it can only be found here in this word. And that is exactly what 
this psalm is trying to teach to us. How it is that we find blessing. Now, obviously, as we've seen from Matthew chapter 5, blessing does not mean, necessarily, material wealth. The psalm does not promise that if you meditate on his word day and night that the new car will appear in your driveway. Or that those things that have been bothering you about your health and your body will go away. Indeed, what blessing here is being talked about is something so much more than that. The blessing that we are going to receive is counterintuitive, even for Christians. We're so still steeped in how the world defines what blessing is, and we won't know what it is without this psalm. So let's jump in. Let's find out what blessing is and how it is that we can achieve it. And we'll see this under two points. And point number one is that blessing looks like transformation. Blessing looks like transformation. And then number two is that blessing comes through the Word of God. If you want to follow along, outline is on the back of your prayer guide here today. So we begin with the first word, which is blessed, which is probably a good thing to define. There are two different types of words that can be used for blessed. One of them is only from God, and the other is only used by man to man. And that's actually the word that is being used here. This word for blessed entails the idea that you need to do something in order to achieve this blessedness. Now, we're going to state from the outset, and if you haven't, you've heard this thousands of times before, because I really want to make sure we understand this. This is not saying that we earn the blessing of salvation through what we do. That's not what we're saying here at all. But what we are saying is how much you enjoy that salvation is, in some measure, to how how you appropriate the blessings that he's given to you. So if we want to experience more of God's blessing and transformation and holiness, we need to make use of the tools that he's given to us, which is his word and prayer, as we'll see this go forward. So we'll see that the first step to obtaining blessedness, the character of the blessed man looks like something of what he does not do at the beginning. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, we've been careful in the way that it says that we avoid the way of the wicked. This does not mean that we do not associate with sinful people. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to associate with any people. In fact, this is what Paul himself warns about in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says to not associate with the sexually immoral. He was meaning those that were within the church as a part of church discipline. And he goes on to say, if I meant for you to avoid all immoral people, you would have to go out of the world. So that's not what he's saying. Jesus, of course, interacted with with the sinners of his time. The key point of that, of course, was that he was interacting with them to bring them the good news of the gospel not to become like them. And that's what he's talking about here, is to avoid the way of these sinners. We need to go to sinners to give them the good news. Someone went to us. We were in that way and has pulled us by God's grace to his way. But we need to avoid the way of sinners, the counsel of the wicked. Now, this is harder to do than we think talking about counsel or advice from the wicked. 
The term that's translated here, wicked, doesn't necessarily mean this horrid creature scheming away and it's very obvious that they're wicked. It just means people who aren't believers. They can be very nice, wicked people. And we're given more counsel from nice, ungodly people than ever before. We are talked to constantly. It was one thing when we had television, but you could walk away from the television. Now we carry our televisions with us. The internet walks with us in our pocket. And we've even gotten to the point now to where if we can't look at our screens, or at least we're not supposed to while we're driving, we can put on podcasts so we can read things to us. We're being constantly told something. And if we are not careful with what we listen to, it is shaping us whether we realize it or not. To take one particular example, we can say something like, look, your faith is important, but let's not go overboard on this. The first part of that sentence is true. Your faith is important in Christ. And the second part of the sentence has a true principle of moderation, to be moderate in all things. But the twist in the problem is that is in the application of that principle. We're not moderate when it comes to obedience to Jesus. But can you see how something like that is very subtle? It takes interrogation of each of these claims that are being given to us. And they can be subtle. But we're told this through logos, through social media posts, through everything. A fun exercise my father and I used to do and we would watch football on Saturdays. We see the commercials come on and we would try to distill what was the message of that commercial and present it extremely flatly. This is what we do for fun. So we would see these car commercials of these things going through these vibrant cities with inexplicably no traffic. And we would see these cars zoom by with some tagline of, you know, escape to your commute or whatever. And we both look at each other and we say, huh, So if I buy that car, I will enjoy my rides and probably avoid any and all traffic from now on, right? That's what the commercial tells you. And while we say it flatly, we don't believe that. But when we're shown an image of this is what freedom looks like, this is what success looks like, People that you want to be like are wearing these clothes, driving these cars, have children that are behaving in this way, and we can be shaped by this is what blessing looks like. That's the counsel of the ungodly. That's the advice of the wicked. But it never comes to you like that. It's never labeled evil advice. It's always labeled the things that your neighbors are doing. It's what everybody else is after. It's the default lifestyle, as I heard it put. One of just consumption. We're not called to that. We're called to avoid those things. To not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. You can see how it gets more specific and less motion as you go through more counsel you listen to, the stiller you stand. And the more you stand, the more you'll sit and find yourself among them. So we're told what not to do. But what should we do? 
Well, instead of absorbing the counsel of the wicked through any and all means necessary, instead, our delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, this is something that gets easily lost in how we approach the Christian life. We have lost meditation because that term has been surrendered to our culture. And in the way that we typically think about meditation is sitting in an empty room, cross-legged, your hands out to your side saying, and emptying your mind of all thoughts, which for me does not take very long. But when it comes to that, that's not biblical meditation. That's Eastern meditation. The idea of emptying your mind is this is, again, listen to this counsel of the wicked here, is saying, if you can purge out all these other things that you've heard, you'll be able to hear your inner voice better, because that's where wisdom actually is, and you'll be guided by the light of your own heart. That's garbage, because the Bible tells us that our heart is desperately wicked. We're not supposed to listen to that. We're not supposed to empty our minds so we can hear our own voice. We're supposed to fill our mind with God's voice. That's what he calls you to do. So what does he mean when he says meditate on God's law day and night? The word meditate actually has this meaning of repeating under your breath, almost like a low growl. And we actually do this. We just don't think of it that way. Have you ever had a conversation that you know you need to have with someone that's going to be hard, but you've got to pick out exactly the right word to minimize the impact of that conversation? So you go over it and over it, and it's just like, okay, well, I could say this. Like, well, no, no, they'll think that. So I'll do this. You're weighing each word for what it means. As you're trying to explain why it is you bought yet another thing from Home Depot to your wife. Well, I really need this one. And you've got to list out what those reasons are. That's the idea of meditation. Thinking over each word, wringing out every bit of meaning that you can out of a text. Now, that's very different than what we usually do, right? In our daily Bible reading plans, we're not sitting here going, hmm, walks not in the council walks not in the council, walks not in the council. We don't sit there doing that. We buzz through it, don't we? Have you ever noticed that in museums, they do not hand you a pair of running shoes? Because you are not supposed to run through a museum. You're not sprinting down the hallway. If that was your approach to the Louvre, for instance, and you'd spend all day sprinting down all these aisles, how much are you going to see? Or even remember that that's what you saw. Museums do not give you running shoes. They give you benches to sit on. Because they expect you to stare at one piece of artwork for so long that it would be unreasonable to ask you to stand there that whole time. You need to sit down so you have the physical energy to take in all that you're seeing here on the wall. That's what a museum is for. We need to bring a bench to our Bibles. We need to sit down and stare at what God has for us. There is a lot more in here than is in the Mona Lisa. I've seen it. It's a beautiful painting. But it's nothing in comparison to what we have here. But too often, 
We have this thought that we have to blast through every day to get the maximum amount of Scripture. There's nothing wrong with reading for familiarity. There's nothing wrong with a year, a Bible reading plan that takes you through the year. Not saying that that's a bad thing. But what I'm saying is don't then forget to do the work of meditation. We can blast our eyes over a page. And the Bible is so wonderful that you'll even get benefit out of that. But you're missing so much by speed reading through God's Word. Take the time to weigh each word, because each word is important. It means something. There is the reason why the Bible said this thing and not that thing. But taking the time to think these over, and then most importantly, to apply it. Too often, we just speed read. Fewer still will think about, all right, well, this is what it really means. But the last step is, what does this mean to my life? We'll mix those two categories. We'll say, well, what does this verse mean to me? It's like, well, I don't care what it means to you first. Find out what it means and then apply it to yourself. It's very easy when we don't do this, when we don't meditate, when we don't apply. You can read the Bible every year for 40 years and not anything change. One of the greatest ways that you can tell if you're taking advantage of your Bible study is how are you a different Christian now than you were five years ago? Is there change? If there's not, we ought to ask ourselves, how are we using this? It's not the Bible's deficiency. It's not prayer's deficiency. Are we taking advantage of what we're being given? So many of our Christian brothers and sisters in the majority world don't have a full copy of God's word. Some of them have a book or a testament. Some even have a page. But what they have been able to draw out of just those pages have made churches that withstand persecution and heaven knows what else. We've got the full counsel of God in our own language, oftentimes with illustrated study notes. This is the golden age of Christian publication. There are more good books than multiple seminaries could read in a lifetime. And that's before we even get to online resources that are available. There is so much to guide us today. But we don't have time. So we say, we don't have time for blessedness. We've got too much to do. So our culture's told us. They've told us that a blessed person is a busy person. A blessed person, a productive person, has their calendar maxed. A real person doesn't take time for rest. A true worker doesn't have time for the fourth commandment. That's not from the Bible. He's told us when the, in that story of Mary and Martha, the one who was told that was doing the right thing was the one who was sitting at Jesus' feet. There were dishes to do that day. There were meals to make. 
But we take this time to sit, ponder a while the wonders of the Word. And then he's promised what the effect of that is. What's the effect of not walking in the counsel of the wicked and bringing a bench to our Bible while we meditate on it day and night? Well, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and his leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Having a tree or being a tree planted by a river source in the Middle East would have been a really wonderful thing. You're not dependent on rain anymore. You have a constant supply of water that you can draw from. That is a very healthy tree. And one of my commentators pointed out that it yields its fruit in its season. Does it mean that this is always going to be productive years? Does it mean that there's fruit constantly on the tree? That's unrealistic. But in its season, when the Lord desires, there will be fruit. And even if there's not fruit, there's still leaves. Those are green. And then it says, in all that he does, he prospers. And again, we bring a biblical definition to what prospering looks like. We're being told today it looks like, well, whatever you last saw on the internet. For now. It'll change next year. But prospering here is being transformed. Prospering looks like your eyes being blown open to what really matters. Have you ever noticed how tragic it is that you can, when we can see in somebody else's life what they're missing? You see well-meaning men ignore their family because they want to pursue this thing at work. And you can watch it, and there's nothing you can say because they're blind to it. People do, people do this in all manner of life. Ignore all the blessings that they have in pursuit of the one thing that they don't. I want my body to look like this shape. I want this, I want that. Here, this is telling you, if you avoid the counsel of the wicked and you instead fill your mind with the scriptures, by definition, you will prosper. Because prospering looks like being planted in God's word. That's real prospering. That's prospering that is then able to look at even the confiscation of your worldly goods and react to them with joy. In fact, that's one at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. And describes the persecuted church. He says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's what prospering looks like. Being free from the rat race of this world. To be able to look at what is coming. That's what prospering is. But the wicked won't be like that. In fact, the wicked are being described in exactly the opposite terms. You see here the poetry of this psalm, and they are. This is poetry. And note the images. Here the blessed man is like a tree, but the wicked are like chaff. Now, for those of us that do not grow up near wheat fields, which is most of us in here, the reminder of what chaff is, this was this hard shell that encased grain. 
and the, you can't eat it. There's no purpose to it to, other than to protect that grain. So the way that you needed to get rid of that was you'd bundle up all these things of wheat, you'd beat them so as we get the chaff off, and then what you would do is you'd take your pitchfork and throw the whole thing up into the air, and the wind would catch the chaff because it was bigger and more sail-like, and whew, all that chaff would be gone, and the grain that was heavier would fall to the ground, and that's what you want. You gather that up and make your bread. That's how he describes the wicked. They're not like trees that are planted. They're like little useless husks that get blown away in the slightest breeze. That's not planted. That's not productive. That doesn't have staying. That's a very different description. They're not even described as a plant. (laughs) Just a part of something. And then it goes on. To go, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Note the eternal perspective on that. Because if we're honest, and we should be when we're talking about the Bible, we'll look at verse 3 and we'll say, it's like, well, I don't see a whole lot of righteous people prospering. In fact, I see a lot of wicked people prospering. Thank you very much. The chaff look quite well established in our halls of government, in our halls of power. They don't seem to be, in fact, they seem to be gaining quite a bit of ground here lately. Well, let's remind ourselves of what the end is. Sure, they can be prospering. Sure, they're making a run down the field. They might even score. And it's 7,000 to 7 in favor of Jesus, and there's 30 seconds left in the game. The wicked aren't winning. We need to stop pretending like they are. The only thing that matters is what happens at the end. And in verse 5, it says that they will not stand in the judgment. Judgment is coming. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it isn't coming. There will be a day in which everyone who got away with something is not going to get away with it. And everyone who did good things in darkness that nobody knows, it will be known. Nothing's hidden in judgment. No matter what court documents are unsealed, no matter who gets away with what, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Because he's the one who made it. And then it says, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, to get this here in verse 6, The way that Hebrew poetry works is not through rhyming, but through what's called parallelism. So there's either something is said in the first part and is then magnified in the second line or is contrasted. So if the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, that's meant to be a contrast, then the the righteous will live and will live eternally. That's what we're shooting for. That is the perspective we bring into this new year. This is not about making more money. This is not about being more productive. However, the world defines that. Success and prospering is having a mind that has been formed by God's word. And how much your mind is formed by God's word is how much you meditate on it. 
This process does not happen accidentally. We don't become holy by osmosis. Just having the Bible near our head doesn't change anything. We need to read it. We need to think on it. Delight in it. And that comes through a change of heart, which we have to ask Jesus for. If you say, it's like, well, I mean, if I'm honest, it's really difficult to study the Bible like that. I'm tired at the end of the day. Sometimes I would just like to watch TV or just scroll through the internet for a little bit longer. You know what? I get it. I understand. And that's our sin that still clings to us. And it keeps us from this blessing. I would encourage you, if you have never done that before, to have a regular time of getting into God's word. We can find 20 minutes. We don't have to start out at two hours, although you would find a lot more blessing if you did. Start out with 10 or 20 minutes. Read a passage. Even if it means you're reading less in the day, if it means you can think on it and chew on it the rest of the day, then do that. There's no command that says you've got to get through the Bible every year in a year. It's a great practice. It's not required. What is required, according to Psalm 1, is to meditate and delight on God's Word. Ask his help in this process. You can't do it on your own. Jesus says that he'll send the Holy Spirit to teach us all things. The Holy Spirit will help you in this and has helped many other people who have written wonderful books and resources to help you. Take advantage of this in this new year. If you want to be more blessed, meditate on God's word. Lean into the joy of salvation that he gives to you. And if you think that you've never experienced that joy, well, today is a great day to begin that. Put your trust in Christ. He is the true blessed man. He meditated on God's law day and night and was our perfect righteousness. He did all the things that we should have done and paid the penalty for all the things that we did do and then rose again to offer us new life, to offer us blessing. So I pray if you haven't at that point... If you haven't put your trust in him, do so today. Rest all of your eternity on him. Turn from those sins and you will find blessing. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have here today. And I pray that you would help prepare us for this Lord's Supper that we're about to consume. Lord, I ask that you would Be with us in this coming year that we would meditate on your word, delight in your word, and have it transform us. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.